Trevilian Next is the division of Trevilian, a financial services specialist search and talent advisory firm. Since inception, the Trevilian team has dedicated itself to enhancing the return on investment of a company's most important resource, its people. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Love, head of banking and fintech at Trevilian. Today, we are joined with two good friends of ours, Nate Mittag and Frank Sorrentino, both managing directors of FIG Investment Banking at Stevens. Hello, guys. Hi, Brian. How are you, Brian? Thanks for Doing having well. Us. Doing well. And we thought this was a great time to get two brains like yours together and talk about the bank space, M&A, other opportunities for banks, how you're advising your boards and executives. We, we're going to talk a little bit about talent. And uh, in a discussion we just had recently, Frank mentioned navigating gray skies. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Frank? Yeah, absolutely, Brian. You know, um, as we were saying earlier, you know, Nate and I and our, our whole firm, I mean, I'm sure every, every firm out there, this is kind of board offsite season, um, talking about budgets and strategic plans. And um, we've done a number of these conversations in the last month or so. And, and um, you know, look, I, I'd say everybody sort of agrees that maybe outside of the financial crisis and maybe the you know, beginnings of, of COVID, this is about as uncertain as an operating environment and as, a, and as volatile as a capital market that there has been in quite some time. A lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, we can talk it up uh, to Jamie Dimon saying that there's a hurricane coming and then maybe not. He walked that back um, a week ago. Um, but that just tells you how much, you know, just uncertainty that there is out there. Um, and so I think there's no debate on that. Um, you know, at 23, no matter kind of what industry you're in, whether it's banks or, or other companies, it's going to be a choppy year. Um, but, you know, as, as, as we sit back, you know, we are big um, believers and, and really saw this in that sort of 2008, 2010 timeframe. Some of the best opportunities, whether organic or M&A, came out of, you know, significant dislocation and just, you know, uh, significant volatility. And so um, feel like the, the, for companies that are well-prepared, um, and, and that can mean from a capital perspective, a talent perspective, um, acquisition currency, and just, you know, evaluation, um, this should be a, a very interesting opportunity to take advantage of just dislocation. Um, and so that's one area we've been spending a lot of time on. Um, and then, you know, I think looking beyond um, 23, uh, we, we've spent a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, we do think that in 2022, there was a pretty significant shift um, away from growth and technology companies and not just within bank space. I mean, this is more broadly. Um, and this sort of looks like the 2000 era, um, which kind of kicked off a very long time period of outperformance of companies like banks and industrial companies. I mean, who knew you had to be profitable, right? I mean, uh, we're seeing this story again. And I, I think that the banking industry, generally speaking, is set up very well to come out of whatever we're going into. And that's probably a, a 2024 timeframe. Um, bank stocks in particular, I think it's underappreciated, particularly as the larger bank stocks, how much of just cost containment and cost takeout that they have done over a 15 to 20 year time period. 
So these are very efficient companies doing great ROEs, great ROAs. And so, um, you know, while there might be some credit bumps in the near term, margin volatility, um, we think from a, a equity market perspective, um, you know, in 2024, you could see a lot of money that was previously in growth stocks, tech companies or fintech shift into more durable value driven plays, which banking industry should be a, a, a great opportunity. And so um, think about it as almost a renaissance of, um, you know, bank stocks. Um, and, and, and then, you know, there's some different pieces to that, but um, we kind of call it the blue sky um, you know, scenario. And, and we've been spending a lot of time um, talking to folks about what does that mean? And, and, and if that does happen, um, how do you position yourselves? Nate, did you want to add anything to that? I mean, I think you can kind of see it. You know, one of the things that's interesting as we kind of start 2023 is we're kind of actually coming off a little bit of a rough year in 2022, right? I mean, the bank stocks, depending on what index you're looking at, are probably down 20, 25%. You know, and to Frank's point, we've already started to see the shift within the financial sector. You know, fintech stocks are probably down, obviously, depending on which fintech, you know, challenger bank we're thinking of are down on average probably 40 45 percent and so you've already kind of started to see the shift um, into kind of your more deposit taking spread lending type banking institutions and you know the reality is you know we've had a lot of uh, choppiness over the last year everyone's talking about a soft landing hopefully trying to target a soft landing for those of us that fly a lot right i mean part of it is just we want to land and we want to land intact you know we've already had a lot of choppiness over the last 12 plus months. Um, and so I think Frank is right. The banks are very well positioned in the sense that this is a lot different than 12 plus years ago. Um, underwriting has changed a lot. You know, margins right now potentially are peaking going into this first quarter. And, you know, reality is if, if rates, if we have another, you know, 25 bit rate hike and then maybe another 25 bit rate hike, I think banks are now kind of at that point where they're kind of ready for potentially rates to kind of hit that plateau and be ready for a higher for longer environment potentially. Um, and so I think in general, they're well prepared on a lot of fronts and the expense, the expense point that Frank made as well is a good one. You know, we're seeing the average bank right now is, is running in the 50 plus percent efficiency ratio. I mean, that's, that's significantly lower on average than we were, you know, in the last crisis. So I think if we do head into a, a downward economic environment, call it a recession, we might already be in one. The banks are kind of well prepared to to come out of it really strong without without having really any big blowups. Yeah, those interesting points. And I'm thinking, you know, when COVID happened, everyone kind of got introspective, right? They looked at their efficiencies. They embraced technology more in probably like a three-year span than they had done in 30 years prior to that. It almost feels like maybe 2023 is a similar type of year where you're going to look internally drive efficiencies lower, even lower with more technology. Um, but I wanted to change the subject to M&A because we keep, we're coming off a year, Nate, you mentioned it, you know, it was kind of a bumpy 2022. There were about, what, 124 deals, I think, closed for the calendar year. And obviously, if you're a betting person, if you take the under potentially on in, in 2023. But what, what is your prognostication for how M&A occurs? Is, is there a continuation of some mergers of equals, of bigger shops? Do the credit unions continue to take, you know, a little bit more of, of the banks away? Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I, I maybe I'll start and you jump in. Um, you know, I, I think we're going to see a continuation of what we saw in 2022. Um, 22, I think going into the year, uh, everybody was kind of licking their chops. There's going to be a ton of deals. Valuations are great. Man, that changed fast, right? In that first quarter, you know, in that February timeframe, Ukraine, Russia, that kind of set everything off. And deals have been very choppy since. It's not that there's not going to be M&A deals, but I think you're going to see, you know, a continuation of just lower on average. Um, I think, you know, you probably see less in the way of the large bank M&A because of some of the regulatory considerations. Um, that could change in a year or two, but I don't think that's going to change over the next six to 12 months. Um, now, what, one thing I do, Brian, to what you said earlier is very interesting. So I agree with you. During COVID, a lot of folks looked introspectively. And I, I used to call it, that was the right time to acquire yourself. <laughs> Whether that was buy back their own stock, take out costs, um, reorganize, it was the perfect um, you know, cover. I think this time though, I think folks are, are, are now looking at 23. And I, I think maybe, look, maybe it's because we're all kind of glass half full optimists on, there's, there's gonna be, some, you know, credit issues, but people, I think, feel generally pretty good about the balance sheet. Um, and so I think this time we're actually going to see some, maybe not bigger deals, but I think some transformative M&A deals, because I think you've got, you've got some really good companies who are saying this is the perfect time to do something transformational. And there's no better time when there's a lot of noise, right? And we are going to be in a lot of noise for the next year. And so I think you're going to see some transactions that surprise people. And, and I have to say, I give a lot of credit to Lakeland Provident. That was a deal. And, and we can debate, you know, what investors liked about it, what investors did, 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 did not like about it. But uh, the deal does have a lot of strategic merit. It's a financially compelling deal. And I applaud them for doing that in a very uncertain time frame. Um, I think we're going to see more of that. I also think um, because we're probably in the later innings of rate rises, there's a little bit more comfort with the mark to market, the tangible book value dilution up, up front. Um, and, and that was you know, probably the primary hindrance of M&A in the last year. Um, it's going to continue to keep deals slower, but folks are getting more comfortable with it. And, and quite frankly, I think institutional um, investors are getting more comfortable. They, they may not like it, but they are going to get more comfortable with it. There's going to be more deals with heavier tangible book value dilution. Um, and so uh, I think we're going to see more of what we did in 22, but I think we're going to see a little bit more in the way of bolder, aggressive uh, M&A deals. Nate, you want to chime in on M&A? Well, I mean, I would, I would add to, to Frank's point. I mean, obviously, deposits right now are, you know, cash is king everywhere. And folks are thinking about, you know, where they are from a capital perspective. Obviously, their tangible book values have been kind of diluted unfairly because of AOCI. There's just been a lot of various things that have, you know, affected, um, you know, certain metrics that we, that needless to say, are actually very important in an M&A context. And so, you know, we have we have a number of, of clients that are actually trading at pretty healthy premiums, their tangible book value. And they're saying, look, we want to go and, and do a deal, 
you know, but some of their prime targets that have taken big AOCI hits, you know, might have low tangible common equity ratios right now. And it's just hard to make the math work. So that's kind of in real time, you know, causing some headwinds to getting deals done. But there's actually nothing, I think, keeping back from a social standpoint, uh, folks from talking. I think there, there, we have lots of clients that are kind of in conversations and, you know, it might not be able to get done in the next six months. But if you go out another 12 to 18, the market dynamics will change and, and those deals will get done. If you go back, you know, four plus years ago when, when rates were rising, you know, post the Trump bump and then in 2018, we had, we had rates rising and, and AOCI actually was a little bit of an issue, not nearly on the scale it is today, but it was something that was being discussed. And, there, and people were trying to kind of fair value balance sheets for it. Once we kind of, you know, had a, uh, once we went the other direction into 2019, you know, because funding had gotten a little bit more difficult the year before, there were a lot of banks that, you know, one year later decided it was time to, to think about maybe an exit. And so I think we'll start to also see potentially some smaller banks thinking about making transition just because of the funding piece, in addition to all the other issues that have driven M&A in the past, like succession, things like that. I appreciate that, Nate. And, um, you know, I'm just trying to think also, do you, do you think you'll be recommending, you know, preemptive capital raises? Are those going to come back, you know, later this year? Is that something that's on the agenda of, of, of bank executives? I think well, so I think a lot of a lot of folks are probably feel like they don't need to go raise capital right now. Most folks, I think, are of the expectation AOCI is going to come back. It's going to enhance their TCE ratio pretty significantly. Um, you know, the reality is the, the investors have always focused on tangible common equity, tangible assets. There could be some banks that if look if the if funding costs keep going up as rapidly as they are, I mean, we're starting to see large banks you know, that have already announced earnings in the 1% plus range for, for cost of funds, you know, on average, just thinking 30 to 40% betas this year, you know, funding could be an issue. And I think over time, it's, it, you know, the, the funding could be the way for regulators to talk about, you know, tangible capital. Um, and, and that could force some folks to think about actually going out and raising equity, uh, assuming the markets are open at that point in time. Sure. Yeah, Brian, I would add that too. I think, you know, at the tail end of last year, started to see it, uh, you know, with the FDIC speech and OCC speech, they, they were sort of on the edge talking about, uh, yes, AOCI is not part of regulatory capital, but it's a consideration. And, um, you know, particularly if uh, interest rates continue to go up or stay high for a long time period, um, there are a lot of banks that are pretty stretched on tangible equity, and that in itself is not necessarily the the uh, problem. the The problem is, and and you know, to use a recent example, um, where if you've got to sell out of your securities book that's available for sale and actually turn that unrealized loss into a real loss, it could be problematic. Now that is that is an extreme example, um, but you know, it's very interesting. If you think about the 2008 crisis, we came into that with a inverted curve, a high, high, just high absolute rates, but rates came down. And that actually, even though folks had credit issues, you could shrink the, the uh, company to help uh, absorb some of that. 
And you were able to do that because you had rates coming down. So you had gains on bond portfolio. Well, this time you have the opposite. You've got loan growth that's still pretty good for a lot of folks. You've got funding that is coming out of banking system and probably is going to continue to come out for, for some time. And you don't have the flexibility to sell securities at uh, gains. And so um, there could be some, some situations. I don't think it's going to be a ton, but we would certainly see situations where banks feel like they've got to go bolster just tangible equity. Um, and it's not, it may not necessarily be driven by, by regulators. Um, but, you know, we always say, too, the institutional investors, if you're a public company, they are a regulator in a different, a different form. They have a certain threshold that they think you should be at. And there are plenty of examples of companies that are trading at very low price to earnings multiples. And a big reason for that is because their tangible equity levels are very low, kind of below average. And, in, um, in, you know, the institutional investors have sort of already given judgment that there is a capital raise coming. And so it may not be in your number today. So you're trading at seven times earnings, but you know, we think it's really more like nine times earnings and because you're going to have to raise X million at, at, at some point. And so that's got to be factored in. Uh, you know, if you, if you at all care about at least your, your sort of short-term valuation, which can impact M&A and just other things. Yeah. And on the, on the subject of valuations with stock prices, you know, trading low, what's your take on, on share repurchases this year? Is it a good time? I mean, there, there, it seems like it could be. It could be. I guess it, it depends how you look at the interest rate environment. Um, and I, I say that because if you think that AOCI is going to come back and it comes back maybe quicker than uh, what the life of the portfolio is, probably a great time to buy back stock because you could be buying back stock at yeah. truly book value in a year from now or, or a slight premium. I always use the uh, Jamie Dimon, um, you know, Warren Buffett rule of thumb. Probably anytime you can buy your stock back under book in a quarter, it's a, gr it's a very good idea. It's a great use of um, capital. Um, at the same time, though, I think for a lot of companies, particularly um, growth companies, I think you're probably better off preserving that capital and maybe not doing anything with it right now uh, to kind of grow into whether it's your tangible equity ratio, preserve some cash for, for, for M&A. Um, and I know it's kind of crazy to think about it, but there, there is a possibility stocks could sell off again. I mean, look, look what's happening with fourth quarter earnings. Um, the volatility in stocks has been pretty unbelievable. I mean, I'm looking at my screen right now. There's four or five banks, very good banks, who are down five to eight um, you know, percent right now um, daily. I mean, so there might be better opportunity to buy your stock back. I don't know that we're done um, with this bank stock sell-off here. And I say that because the fourth quarter earnings have been interesting. I feel like a lot of people knew there was going to be liquidity and deposit outflow issues. But I think what has caught some folks, some um, um, the investors by surprise, there's been a lot more in the way of credit provisioning, one-time charge-offs. I feel like everybody thought this was coming maybe in the second or third quarter, not now. Um, and so I say that because we might be in the middle of the bank stock cycle. It could be another, unfortunately, tough year for just bank stocks. Mm -hmm. Nate, if you wanted to respond, or I, I was going to change the subject 
feel free if you'd like. I mean, Brian, I just, I, w- I would be happy to echo Frank's point about, I mean, look, I view it as just kind of, this is, this feels like a year where you want to salvage some dry powder. You know, there's going to be dislocation, you know, there's going to be opportunities about later in the year. I think retaining capital and cash, you know, is important in this market. Um, you know, I think part of where banks are valued right now, make, make buybacks, you know, kind of an interesting debate um, because, you know, with, with TBV numbers being pretty low, we're talking about banks buying back their stock between 150 and two times book, uh, which, which feels a little bit of expensive. And if, you know, even if you're trading seven, eight times earnings, the reality is if you think there could be some credit issues on the horizon or maybe estimates that are out there haven't factored in potential net interest margin compression, you know, and maybe that's really like a nine times multiple that you're buying back your stock. There could be other, you know, better alternatives for saving, saving, saving liquidity to to reinvest in loan growth or future M and A. That's a good point, Nate. Yeah, buckle down, keep the dry the dry powder uh, in in your bucket. Um, I wanted to change the subject to strategic opportunities outside of M and A. And, you know, Frank, you and I have talked about a lot of the different Bass banks that we help and, you know, getting into something like Bass is a great, you know, a great way to, to raise, you know, low cost deposits, great way to create fee revenue payments is another element there. You know, a lot of banks got into digital assets, seems like it's a really muddy road on that side of things right now. But how are you advising and what are, what are boardrooms talking about in terms of, you know, new areas to get into you know uh it's so interesting i mean a year ago if you would have asked me that it was all about understanding digital assets banking as a service how do we play can we play what does it take um who's the competition set i feel like and i i don't know if it's just because of the companies that that we're focused on but that has gone 180. And I think, you know, and look, I think folks, it's a pendulum always swings too far, right? We might be in the pendulum was too far last year and everybody looking Mm -hmm. at it. Now we might be in the opposite where not enough people are going to be looking at it because there are some really, really good stories there. I mean, I think about banks like MVB, Coastal, I mean, they have done a very nice job and I think have built very valuable franchises and, and, and knock on wood continue to, um, so I actually think this is a great time to be looking at something like that. You, it's probably easier. There's less competition than there was a year ago. Um, so there's that side of it. I, you know, the other thing that's been coming up a lot with, with boards is um, this deposit environment and just interest rate environment, I think has put a renewed focus that core deposits are, are the most important thing. Um, and, and whether that means you know, maybe it's not doing a new branch, but maybe it's, you know, hey, go spend some money on hiring out a treasury focused commercial team. We've had a lot of conversations with clients around that. Um, and, and also, you know, I, I think um, especially during a, um, you know, COVID, there was a huge shift to let's cut branches out. I mean, we're having clients today that are asking us about branch acquisitions. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a 180. And so, um, maybe going you know, back now that um, the, the sort of the, the trends that were very powerful at the beginning of COVID, some of that has subsided. Now we're in a little bit of a, you know, maybe a world that's got a combination of COVID trends and then sort of 
pre-COVID trends, finding that right you know, balance. Um, and so you know, maybe, maybe you do need to open another branch office or you got to reposition branches or lift some branches from somebody else. And so um, I think we're early in that process, but a lot of boards are now asking, how do we gather for a deposit? And I think coming back to M&A, I mean, that, that's the, probably the fastest way to, to um, do it and, and, and could be the most um, efficient way. I hear I hear a lot of talk about lifting out talent. It's nothing new, but lifting out treasury talent. And by the way, it's so it's maddening because it's so cyclical. You know, <laughs> any any given two year stretch, there's a bunch of treasury management people sitting on the street, not really doing anything. Now they're in high demand again. It's it's you know it's 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 interesting how that happens. But um, Nate, did you did you have a, a take on uh, on this as well? Well, I think you're right, Brian. I mean, a couple of years ago, I mean, liter- literally, maybe, you know, 16 months ago, everybody yeah. was talking about lift outs of commercial lenders, finding good lending teams. There had been a lot of M&A, obviously, over the last few years. So there was potential dislocation around talent out there. Obviously, with COVID, talent was really, really hard to come by. It was all about, you know, finding lift outs on the earning asset side. Um, now, obviously, everybody's looking for funding, and so they're kind of like thinking about the old school methods, like Frank said, should I just go buy branches? You know, you need capital to buy branches, by the way, and you need cash because uh, you have to pay premiums, you know, and, and obviously deposits are worth a lot right now. And so I think one of the things to tie it into the original part of the question, which, you know, was about, you know, other ways to kind of invest outside of M&A, and you mentioned Bass and FinTech, and, and Frank mentioned MVB and Coastal. You know, the interesting thing, and I think a lot of bank management teams have been thinking about ways to creatively, you know, enter the digital world, and they haven't been quite sure how to figure it out, particularly smaller community banks that might be scared to spend on the infrastructure. <clears throat> you know, MVB is a great example in the sense of what they did was they found a niche. They found something that they wanted to focus on and build, and it happened to be on the liability, on the deposit taking side. Um, and so, you know, they've transformed their balance sheet in the sense where I think 50% of their deposits now are non-interest bearing checking accounts. I mean, technically checking non-interest bearing deposits. So, you know, that, that's a transformation where they use technology and fintech and banking as a service, you know, really to a solid advantage to, 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 re, to achieve a goal. And I think that's going to be how banks that maybe haven't dove in yet to fintech you know, can try to figure out a way to take advantage of it is you have to find some way to differentiate. Over time, all these bank, all the banks are going to, you know, have a digital part of their franchise. It's just part of the future. It's just part of the transformation of the business. Over time, you know, we've had a shrinking number of banks every year. And, you know, over time, the banks are going to get better at digital. But I think, you know, trying to find something to be good at in a niche is kind of a way to differentiate and actually, you know, use it to help business. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, old habits die hard. And it's, you know, it's basically, it's now or never with with the technological piece. Um, Trevelyan's been lucky to deal with some, you know, some similar banks, the ones you mentioned. And a lot of them, you look at them on, you know, where they are located in the country, and you realize, like, there's not a lot of expansion here to build your business in, you know, in a two hour radius around your bank. So that's why I think right. are there any other interesting, you know, maybe new asset classes that you're hearing banks getting into or new products and services? No, I mean, I, uh, almost the opposite. Um, I think we've seen 
you know, I, and, and, and probably chalk this up to all the excess liquidity that entered the, the uh, system in the 2020, early 2020, a lot of that was deployed into whether it was bond portfolios, but also things that are more wholesale on loan side, like consumer lending pools that were, you know, basically fintech originated that were bought. Um, and I feel like all, not all of it, but a lot of that is getting run down, not mm -hmm. taken up again. And so I think a lot of banks are getting much more core on the asset side because they do have funding challenges. I think you're going to see loan to deposit ratios are just continuing to climb. And uh, we've heard some pretty extreme examples of, you know, banks going from the, you know, 80% area who are approaching the 100% area pretty quickly. Um, and, and so I, I think it's actually going to be uh, more of a, you know, everybody sort of letting, you know, non-relationship, non-wholesale stuff go to the extent that they, they uh, can and getting more down to a core, um, you know, franchise. I agree. So I guess the last subject. Brian, you know, we, we, yeah. Brian, I'd also just throw in one thing. You know, it's funny. I, I was thinking back to our, our conversation that we had, and I think it was August of 2020. Um, I was not in my office. I don't think anybody was in an, an office at that time. And, and, and I remember talking about deposits. And, you know, at that time, nobody needed them. And, and you know, we were talking about that's the best time to buy when nobody needs them. That's probably right. when you're going to get them cheapest. Um, I think about the environment today. Um, for anybody that wants a mortgage banking business, this is the time to buy it. Ah. <laughs> You're probably not going to get it any cheaper. Um, <laughs> and, 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 I'd say, and I'd say the same thing maybe for certain lending categories, whether you're listing out a, a, a team or do you find the right specialty finance company. Um, I, I have to think that if you're in the sell mode today, you don't want to be selling unless you have to for succession or um, you know liquidity. But if you're, it's it's a buyer's market for certain assets like that, and so this is the exact right time to be thinking of something like that. Yeah, a lot of optimism laced in in something what you you guys are saying, and I like that because um, there's it's it is right. I, I would add. Right. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I would, I would add, you know, Frank's absolutely right. I think it's a buyer's market for talent too, you know, in that you have a lot of, you have a lot of folks out there that are thinking about downsizing and they're cutting costs, they're cutting expenses. And, you know, there could very well be, like I mentioned earlier, you know, 12 plus months ago, we were in an environment where everybody was really looking for talent, trying to buy talent. It was really hard to find it at a relatively, you know, call it reasonable cost. But I think the market, you know, we've seen it even change within our investment banking world, right? It's, it's becoming a little bit of a different market than it was just post-COVID um, to, to go out and, and find talent that, you know, could be a little bit more affordable, but could be very helpful to the, to the franchise. And that was the final, my final subject was talent. So thanks for going down this road. We've actually <laughs> seen, you know, some of the banner placements we've made have, have kind of supported your thesis. They're, you know, um, fintech presidents, head of digital banking, folks that are going to bleed the right. bank into new asset classes, new types of generation, embracing technology, and then using it across the bank. And then you, you're also seeing the advent of chief strategy officer roles. It's not new. But I'd say 10 years ago, you haven't seen you know, that CSO title that often. We're seeing more searches kind of like that where there's a great executive team, but it's missing a part. It's missing someone who has that, that 
wherewithal, who knows how to go out, you know, buy that company, get that team, deliver it and integrate it. Um, that's not a talent you see on every single executive team, especially when you go a little smaller in the community bank sector. So um, I don't know if there's any other last thoughts on, on talent that you wanted to mention. I, I, Brian, I'd just say Nate and I have said this um, many times and, and very pertinent for, for analyzing M&A. The end of the, the uh, day, unless it's you're buying a, a company that's got a very niche business model, um, a lot of community banking is commoditized. You are buying talent um, and you got to always be thinking about talent, whether it's lifting out from organically, hiring within um, or M&A. Uh, it's the most important piece. And, you know, I, I, I th- it's very interesting. Um, I think th- this has always been true, right? Banks are usually sold, not bought. Um, and that really gets to management and succession. Um, and we're seeing in a lot of situ in a lot of geographies that right now, uh, for many factors, there's probably more um, sellers, willing sellers at reasonable valuations than there are um, acquirers who can and will do M and A. And what that's going to, what I, th- and I think this is going to continue. Um, and, and it's because of a lot of the uh, CEO ages, um, th- that probably drives, um, more call them strategic deals, mergers of equal type, um, deals. And that is even more important when you think about talent and, and how do you assess a combined company? Uh, because those are, those are just, they're trickier deals, but, um, we, I just, Nate and I have been spending much more time on anything talent related because as branch counts shrink and it's more technology, talent becomes that much more important for just execution. Agreed. I agree. It always, it always feels great when you work on a transaction where, you know, the management team of the acquiring entity is actually taking on some senior level folks on the management team of the selling bank. It just makes everybody feel, you know, a little bit more warm and fuzzy, a little bit more comfortable about the taking on. Everybody's going to still have a stake in it. Um, you know, I worked on a transaction earlier this year where the selling company was a much smaller bank, but their CFO is going to be the pro forma CFO of the whole company going forward. And the buyer is very, very excited about that. Um, it takes a load off certain folks' shoulders. It allows other folks to focus on strategy, to your point, Brian. Um, and I think it helps, particularly banks that are focused on doing M&A, be able to kind of, when they have somebody that's really focused on strategy or, you know, M&A as a business line, et cetera, it just helps the whole management team be able to prioritize individually. And I think that's better for the company. Well, thanks, Nate. And thanks, Frank. At this point, I think we're out of time. Um, I definitely, uh, again, wanted to thank you guys for hopping on. Um, very excited to see what 2023 brings. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's there's a lot of optimism that I heard from this call, but uh, it's definitely going to be somewhat of an intro- introspective year for banks. So uh, once again, Frank and Nate, thank you so, so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you very Appreciate much, Brian. It. Thanks, Brian.